Acts 7, verse 1, and we'll read all the way to 17. 7, 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length's, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today to consider weighty things, to consider this sermon that got Stephen stoned and killed, and as we... Think about what he said to the Sanhedrin, and we um, humbly approach you. May the truth that Stephen says fall on our hearts. Convict of sin and rebellion in our own hearts so that we can repent and not find the same end as the Sanhedrin. And Father, give us hope. Hope in light of all that you've done throughout salvation history and hope that the Emmanuel has come, that Jesus has come to set us free from sin and evil and is coming again to set everything right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? What are we supposed to think when across our country we have riots and protests over an election that happened three weeks ago? In our very own state, California, is actively seeking to leave the union 
just be unthinkable two months ago. And then just days ago, we have the death of a brutal, evil dictator, Fidel Castro, and people don't know how to respond. They don't know what to call all he did. They don't know how to call evil, evil. And all of this on the week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> what a weird contrast of events, right? We're supposed to be putting up lights and decorating and, and rejoicing and all these things, but there's all these really heavy and difficult, weighty things happening. Even Thanksgiving itself is such a strange holiday now, right? The day that we're supposed to reflect on all that God has done and all that God has given us and blessed us with, followed by the day where we trample people to get what we don't have, right? Black Friday is getting crazier every year. It's getting longer every year. Now we have like Black Month. And I saw, it's true, it's extended through the entire month of November. And I saw a video this week where a woman was, was pepper sprayed over a TV, Pepper sprayed right in the face. Could you imagine that? And that was on the day of Thanksgiving, by the way. So just imagine being thankful for your turkey and family, and then hours later, give me that TV, or I'm going to pepper spray you in the face. Right? It's just crazy. This is what our nation has come to. But this is the world we live in. It's such a crazy world. The time of year dedicated for joy and peace and rejoicing that the Savior has come is also the time of year of great difficulty and chaos and it can start to feel like the holidays are just a mask, just a smokescreen, just a distraction to distract us from the difficulty of this world. And we're really just playing and, and having fun trying to distract our minds so we don't see how bad this world is. And we can even start to believe or even mock the things we rejoice at Christmas and think, thinking that they're not really true. That maybe God really hasn't come. Maybe God isn't active in this world. He isn't present at work for His people's good and His glory. So what are we supposed to do? Just grin and put the lights up? Or does the Bible offer us truth? That there is hope in this fallen and difficult world. That God is still active and present even in the difficulty. And that's what we can learn from Stephen's sermon today. And actually, we're going, to, we're going to spend a lot of time in Stephen's sermon. The next few weeks, all the way leading up to Christmas, we're going to focus on Stephen's sermon and talk about how God's presence has come to this world through Christ. And to get to that point, it's been a long time coming. Thou long expected Jesus, all the way through the Old Testament. And Stephen is going to survey the Old Testament to get to that point to get to the point where we see Christ has come. But let me give you a refresher on what we did last week, because Chad gave us a great overview of the entire chapter 7 of Acts, and it's something you need to remember as we go through this text. So Stephen. Stephen is a man of God, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And he's a deacon. Remember, in Acts 6, they had to appoint deacons to serve in the church. And then in Acts 7... One of the first deacons of the church becomes one of the first martyrs of the, church, of the church. What a sad day to see that happen. And the deacon, not even the apostles, uh, is the one that becomes martyred first. Maybe that's why our deacon ministry is so small. We don't want more people <laughs> following in the lines of Eric. Um, so there we go. But no, that he's, he's killed because he preaches this, this amazing sermon. And sadly, this sermon is skipped over a lot because it's like, yeah, yeah, it's just Old Testament history. But what, what Peter, excuse me, what Stephen is doing here is he's laying out the history of the Old Testament to show the Sanhedrin, who know this history well, the truth that Jesus has come and that they've missed it. 
It's not really an, an evangelistic sermon like you would hear from Peter or from Paul. He doesn't really mention the resurrection or the cross. He doesn't even explicitly mention Jesus or faith in Jesus. He alludes to him through the Old Testament, but he never really gets that far. I have a feeling that his sermon was cut short by people rushing him to stone him. And he would have gotten there, but he, he does lead up to the gospel. And he's going to talk about that. So in result, his sermon is not really the normal sermon we're used to. It's more like a lawsuit oracle. If you've never heard what those are, those are in the Old Testament prophets often, where the prophet would actually lay out a lawsuit against the people of God. Remember, the prophet's job wasn't just to foretell the future, to, to tell them what would happen. The prophet's job was to be the covenant enforcers. They were the ones to hold out the covenant and say, look, we're not doing this. We need to repent. And whenever they did these lawsuits or oracles, they would display God's faithfulness throughout the ages. They would show all that God's done and say, look at how faithful your God has been. He's kept his into the covenant. We haven't. And we need to repent. And if the people don't repent, then the prophet would become the prosecutor. And they would lay out the case against God's people and announce that there would be divine judgment against God's people. And sadly, that's a lot of what happens here in Stephen's sermon. His sermon hardens the Jews in a way that the gospel is actually spread out all over Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The, the work in Jerusalem continues with Peter, but it, it definitely is a turn, and God continues to reach the Gentiles. And what's ironic about this sermon is that even though Stephen's going to put the Sanhedrin on trial, he's the one that's supposed to be on trial. Remember, look at Acts 6 with me. These are the charges against Stephen in Acts 6, verse 12. Just flip one page back. Acts 6, verse 12. This is what Stephen is called into question for. And they, those are the Jews that are accusing Stephen, stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen is accused of blaspheming God, and specifically in terms of the temple and the law. And he's called to defend himself, and what's so funny is he barely even does that. He actually flips the courtroom and puts the people of God on trial. He says, you want to talk about blasphemy? You want to talk about me blaspheming God? You've been blaspheming God your whole life. You're the one who's missed the temple. You're the one who thinks that the temple is the only place where God rests. That this is the only place you can commune with God and be with God. And that this dirt that you're on is the only place that will see that. Not only that, you think this is the final resting place of God. I haven't blasphemed the temple. The temple was supposed to point further than the dirt that it sits on. You're missing Jesus because you idolize the temple. And not only that, you are the ones that break the law. You've been doing it your whole life. Your fathers have been doing it. All they did was kill and murder the prophets and break Moses' law. Killing the prophets and breaking law has become a family tradition for you. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is what he's saying. Is there any wonder why he was stoned at the end? It sounds like very harsh judgment, but it's true. And today we're going to look at just a glimpse 
of what Stephen is talking about. Stephen focuses on the temple a lot. But today we are going to focus on the glory of God not being confined to the temple or to the promised land. That's what we're going to focus on today. God's glory doesn't reside at a certain zip code or a certain building. God's glory doesn't reside among a certain people who do certain religious things. No, God's glory resides wherever He wants. God is with His people on His terms, not their terms. And God's place by His covenant is always with His people, even in exile, even in difficult and dark places. And that's what I want you to leave today remembering. The God of glory is with His people, even in exile. And we're going to see that in two historical periods here. We're going to see that the God of glory was with Abraham in exile, and he was with Joseph in exile. So God was with Abraham and Joseph, and because of that, the God of glory can be with us through Christ. So let's start in verse 1. This is Abraham, the period of time he talks about Abraham and Abraham's exile. Verse 1. And the high priest... Now remember, that's Caiaphas. Boy, this poor guy has had all of his bad decisions recorded throughout history. It is. It's, he was the one responsible for the mock trial of Jesus. The one that really closely parallels this trial of Stephen. He was the judge over Peter and the apostles as they were called to disobey God by stopping to preach. And now... Caiaphas is responsible. He, he's the leader of this court who's responsible for the first martyr of the Christian church. He's become infamous in a very bad way. Verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Remember, those are the charges. Those are the temple charges and the law charges. But he says it in a very underhanded and cruel way. Almost to the point of, Stephen, this is your last chance. This is it. If you want to recant your story, if you want to save your life, you better start saving it now. Almost, you're guilty, now prove yourself innocent. It's a bad sign for Stephen, and that's what Caiaphas says here. And now we see Stephen's argument in verse 2, the beginning of the whole sermon here, verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And now Stephen is is really doing an interesting thing here. He's actually showing a lot of respect for the people around him. The people that will stone him not that long after. He says, we're brothers. We have the same blood in our vein. We come from the same people group. There's a lot of family heritage we share. And fathers, I respect you guys. I know I didn't come from nowhere. I know the history that brought me up. There's a respect and and a mutual respect that happens here. But then he says, hear me. He turns and there's a boldness that follows that respect that says, you know, I'm the one on trial, but everybody better listen up because I'm going to put all of you on trial. So there's a boldness here that comes with this this recounting of history. Verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haram. Now, this is such an important word that, that Stephen uses. He says, the God of glory. The God of glory. I wonder, where, where does your mind go when you think of glory? The word glory, the idea of the God of glory. Maybe it goes to that Civil War movie with Denzel Washington. 
know why I just thought of that, but the, maybe that's the glory that comes to your mind. Or maybe it's this sports idea of standing on that podium where the world is watching, and, and it's that no guts, no glory. Take a shot, do your best, and, and risk it all. Maybe you're more spiritual and you're like, no, no, the glory of God is in nature, in snow-capped mountains and the beautiful ocean and all the, the world that God has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, no, no, the glory of God is in the church, the songs that we sing and the communion that we have. No, for the Jew, those things wouldn't be the first thing to come to mind when they think of God and his glory. For a Jew, the first thing that would come to mind would be the temple and the tabernacle. The first thing would be God's Shekinah glory. That's what they called it. It's this word. It's not in the Bible, but the rabbis called it this glory that manifests itself. It's that glory cloud we see in the Old Testament among the temple. You know, it's better to show you than to tell you. So turn to Exodus 40. Keep your finger in Acts. We're going to come back there. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 40. Need to see how big of a moment in history this is. And at this point in Exodus, we are after they've been freed from Egypt... After the Jews are in the desert, we're after the Red Sea, we're after the Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, and God's people has begun to wander the desert, and now they are going to build the tabernacle. And something amazing happens. Verse 34 of chapter 40 of Exodus. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's that Shekinah glory. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire on it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. We hear that and we think, whoa, cool. When a Jew hears that, because they're so immersed into the Old Testament, their minds would just explode. Can you believe what just happened? Can you believe that God would do this? Because you see, they would see Genesis in a way that we often miss. They would see Genesis as a book that teaches us about our creator, about who we are, but they would see Genesis as a tragedy. As a very sad book, because God made us to glorify Him and to worship Him, and the people beheld His glory in the Garden of Eden. But the people dethroned God in their hearts. They rebelled against God. They turned from God, and because of their sin, they were kicked out of God's presence, out of the Garden. And every single sin, every single event that happens in Genesis after that, they move further and further away from God. Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, Noah wipes out creation. Then they get to Abraham and all the way to Jacob. It just gets worse and worse. And the people seem further and further away from God. And then in Exodus, something changes. God being faithful to His covenant promise to Abraham and to Jacob rescues His people from Egypt. He pulls them out of slavery, out of bondage, and pulls them into the desert. And that would have been enough. It would have been enough to care for them and free them in the desert. But God says, you know what? I'm going to do one thing more. I'm going to make this even better. I want you to build 
the tent of meeting, and I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be with you like I haven't been since the Garden of Eden. I'm going to be with you in this brand new, amazing way, and we're going to have a whole book to show you, Leviticus, how to deal with this. But I'm going to be with you in a brand new way that will, will be forever different. It was an amazing historical event. So when the Jews hear the God of glory, that's where their mind goes. But sadly, they've taken that beautiful blessing of God and they've twisted it. They said, this is so big, this is as big as it gets. This is where God's glory will forever reside, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And this is God's land. This is the only place you can commune with God. This is his final resting place. This is where it all terminates. And Stephen is saying, no, you missed it. It was big. It was great. But it was a picture of things to come. It was a picture of the one who would come into the world to be the true temple. And so Stephen's job here is to squash that idol. They say, don't settle for the temple, the tabernacle, for the land. No, look past that to what God always intended. It was Jesus. So when they hear the God of glory, they're thinking the temple. And Stephen wants to turn their minds to Jesus. And here's how he does it. Let's continue verse 2. The God of glory, that Shekinah glory at the temple, appeared to our father Abraham. Where? When he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. I wasn't really good at geography, but where's that? Is that the promised land? No. Is that the place where the temple would be, the tabernacle? No. That is a pagan land of moon worshipers. And did he appear to Abraham because he was so godly? No. Abraham was an idolater. God went after his people. He didn't go straight to the promised land and say, hey, come on over. No, he went after Abraham, even in this pagan foreign land, even in exile. He went after him to save him. And look at what he says in verse 3. And God said to Abraham, Go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land, that's the promised land, in which you are now living. To which the Sanhedrin would say, Amen. See, Abraham was pulled out of that place because it wasn't good enough. That wasn't the promised land. That wasn't where God's presence would be. So he pulled him to the promised land so that Abraham could commune with God. And T Stephen takes that and just pops that bubble right away. Look at what he says, verse 5. Yet he, God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length. Uh-oh. He didn't get to experience the land. He didn't get to taste this promised land. Did God mess up? Let's see. But God promised to give him it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God gave him this promise before his children, his family was even around. That's weird. Verse 6, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners, foreigners, in a land belonging to others, not the promised land, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
So you see what Stephen's doing here? He's saying, look, the promised land must not have been that great for Abraham. Because as soon as he got there, God took him somewhere else. As soon as he got there, God said, you know what? Let's take a 400-year vacation to Egypt. And we'll get back here eventually, but let's, let's go somewhere else. So what happened? See, Stephen's poking at their promised land, at their, their idea of sacred space. He's saying the one that received the promise never got the land. He never got to settle there. It was just a camping trip, and then he moved on to Egypt. Abraham wouldn't get to enjoy the land. This wasn't a place for him to commune with God in a special way. This wasn't the final resting place for God. No, God went with Abraham through the promised land all the way to Egypt. Because God's presence and God's blessing isn't tied to a building or a land. It's tied to his people by the covenant. And that's what he says next, verse 8. And he, God, gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. You see, Stephen saying Abraham's relationship with God wasn't based on sacred space. It wasn't based on land. It was based on covenant and promise and faith. And even though there was no holy place for Abraham, he still got to commune with God. Whether he was in Mesopotamia or Haran or a little bit in the promised land, but also in Egypt, God was with Abraham. Sanhedrin, wake up. It's not about the land. It's not about the building. God will be with his people whether they possess the land or not. God is with us. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. Now, Hebrews helps us understand this even more. Helps us realize how Abraham dealt with not having this land. How he dealt with this promise not really being answered. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hold your finger in in Acts if you're still there, I hope. Hebrews, the other end of the Bible now. Chapter 11. This is the hall of faith. This is where we see all the great fathers of the faith and all that they did in faith to trust in the promises of God. And Abraham is no different, and it really sheds a lot of light on what Stephen is trying to point out here. Chapter 11, verse 8 of Hebrews. Chapter 11, verse 8. This is what the writer of the Hebrews said about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called, called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of, with him with the same promise. He didn't settle in. He, he lived as an exile, as a sojourner, like he was just passing through. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham saw past the promised land, saw past the, the dirt and the temple and the tabernacle. He saw past those things that these Sanhedrin saw all the way to the, the ultimate promised land, to God's city, to heaven, to the place where God's presence will eternally rest. He saw past all those things. And the Sanhedrin can't see past the, the temple and the tabernacle. Verse 13, now we're going to talk about all the fathers. These, all these fathers of the faith, all died in faith. 
not having received the things promised. Sounds like Abraham. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Just like Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day. He looked forward to it. And he saw it and was glad. For he, God, has prepared for them a city. God is the one building the city. God is the one bringing the foundation and bringing his glory into his heavenly home, not the temple. This is what Stephen's trying to say over and over. It's not about the land. It's not about the temple. It's not about that. It's about God's glory residing with his people. The land, the temple, that wasn't the goal. The promised land wasn't the the ultimate goal of God. Those were just the beginning of it. And you're idolizing these things like this is where it ends. You're, You're settling for the appetizer when there's a feast to come. Like Chad said last week, you're, you're falling in love with the shadow. And there's so much more to be offered. You're settling for, for playing in the sand instead of going to the beach. No, the temple, the tabernacle, all of those things are just like training wheels to get us ready for the greater glory that is to come. And the greater glory that came into this world, the true temple is Jesus. And that's what Stephen's trying to get them to. He's trying to say, no, look past the temple. Look past this idol that you've clung to and look to Christ. But they don't. They don't get it. So, so Stephen moves on. He says, okay, let's go to Joseph then. Let's talk about how God was with Abraham in exile. Well, God was also with Joseph in exile. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, those are the 12 sons of Jacob. We read about them in the verse right above it. Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, Stephen has a very clear intention in bringing up this event in this way. He's going to try to compare and, um, the, the, the moments of Jesus' betrayal and the moments of Joseph's betrayal. And he's going to use this moment as a way to bring out the sin of the Sanhedrin. Now, that's what Chad and Jason are going to unpack down the road as we get further into the sermon of Stephen. So I'm going to leave that for them. But what we need to focus on is through this horrible sin, look at what Stephen says at the end of verse 9. Joseph sold into slavery, but God was with him. God was with him. Wait a minute, this, this is backwards. Abraham was brought into the promised land from a pagan nation. That kind of makes sense because the promised land was important to the Sanhedrin, right? That's what they believed. So Joseph is being sent out of the promised land in a very horrible way. Is God not in charge here? Joseph is sold into slavery, sold into Egypt. He's exiled away from his people, away from his promised land. Not only that, he's sent to Egypt of all places. I don't know if you know what the Jews thought of Egypt, but it wasn't the vacation spot. It wasn't the five-star resort. No, Egypt was this sign of idolatry and persecution later in the years of, of this nation's history. But Egypt was a horrible place. So horrible that Abraham didn't want to go there. So, excuse me, Jacob didn't want to go there. God appeared to him in a vision saying, it's okay. It's okay to go there later on. But this is the place that God says, you know what? I'm going to send my people to Egypt. So much for sacred space. So much for God saying that this land is where I want my people to be. Verse 10. And God rescued him out of his afflictions. Wow, talk about an understatement. If you know the story of Joseph, 
those afflictions, those who are being tossed at the bottom of a well, to being sold into slavery, to working as a slave in Potiphar's house, finally starting to see some good things happening, then being accused of, of basically violating his wife, and he's kicked out, put in prison, and then in prison he's locked away, he interprets some, green, some dreams, and then he's put back into prison, until finally, years later, he's brought out in front of Pharaoh. That's a lot of afflictions. And you're saying, God is with Joseph there? Yeah, because look at what he did, the end of verse 10. And gave him favor and wisdom, just like we hear Stephen described, before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. God was in this. God was in this difficulty and slavery and horrible things while Joseph was in exile. God was with him and behind all of this, bringing him to that point in power. Well, what about Joseph's family? They're in the promised land, right? They're blessed, according to the Sanhedrin. Let's see what happened to them. Verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers and their, at their first visit. And on the second visit, uh, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. What was God doing at this time? Oh, he was bringing the entire family out of the promised land to save them. Oh, we so often doubt God's sovereignty when just a little bit of difficulty shows up. But in this case, God worked over a period of 22 years to save his people. Joseph was 17 when he's tossed in that grave. He's 39 when his brothers come to see him in Egypt. And God says, that big whole distraction, that big whole difficulty, all those afflictions, that was to get you to the place where I'm going to grow my people. I'm going to be faithful to my promise, and I'm going to be faithful to my promise in Egypt. Sanhedrin, did you hear that? <laughs> I'm going to be faithful to my promise by bringing the people out of the promised land. Not by being in the promised land with my people. No, I'm going to bring them out. That's what they're trying to say. Verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt. He brought them out. This would have been a total violation of what the Sanhedrin thought of the promised land. Totally unbelievable to them. They're like, wait a minute, you're in God's place. You're in the right place. You're doing the right things. No, their advice to Joseph would be just wait it out. Jacob, wait it out. Don't go to Egypt. That's the wrong place. If you do what you're supposed to in God's place, then God will be faithful to you. That's how they saw this land. But that's not what God was doing. And that's what Stephen's trying to point out. No, God is faithful through his covenant with his people, and he leads his people into exile. And God is with them in exile. And God is setting the stage for redemption in Egypt of all places. And verse 15. Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers what happened to the people that got the promise? They died. Where? Not in the promised land, in Egypt. And their children and their children's children died never having seen the promised land. 
So much for this sacred space. So much for this holy land and this place that God's presence is supposed to be. Did they not experience God's presence in Egypt? Well, let's look at verse 16. They were carried back to Shechem. That's the promised land. And laid in tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. This is kind of a weird thing that Stephen does here. A funny thing. Because he's trying to say, you know what? You know how much of our forefathers got to enjoy the promised land? All they got was to be buried there. That's all they got. That's how blessed they were with the promised land, blessed with the promised land. They missed it all. They didn't even get to go back. Their bones had to be carried back. And did you catch it? They had to buy the land. God didn't give it to them. God didn't say, yeah, this is the land for you. This is what you need to own. No, they had to buy it from the people that were already living there. And so Stephen is saying, look, it's not about the land. It's not about the dust. God is with his people, not just in the promised land, not just through the temple, but wherever they may go, wherever God may lead them, God stays with his people, and he was with his people in Egypt. In fact, he grew them into a great nation. Look at verse 17. But as the promise, but at the time of the promise drew near, that's the 400 years in slavery, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Stephen says, yeah, slavery's a rough thing, but God blessed his people tremendously. God allowed them to grow in an unbelievable, unexplainable type of way. They grew into this great nation, even in bondage, because God was with them. Not because they were in the right place. Not because they were doing all the right religious things in the temple. No, God was with them. They trusted in the promise by faith, in the covenant given to Abraham and passed down through Jacob. They trusted in this God who would be with them even in exile. Oh, I hope at this point in the sermon, the, Stephen's point is clear. And the thing is, he's just barely getting warmed up. The rest of the chapter is going to expound these points even more. But I want, to, I want to point out something at this point in the sermon. I want you to know that, G, that Stephen is trying to show the Sanhedrin that they're idolizing the temple and the land. And the reason they're idolizing the temple and the land is because they're missing who God really is. You think that God only appears to you at the temple or in this certain place. No, God is the God of glory. Yes, the glory that rested in the temple, but he's so much bigger than the building. He's transcendent and majestic and holy. Far too big to even, even be brought to, into this little space. In fact, when Solomon would later dedicate the temple, he would say this. That's what Stephen brings up. If you're still in Acts 7, look at verse 49. Stephen says, look, this is what Solomon said about the temple. Verse 49 of chapter 7. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me? says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is so much bigger to the t than the temple. You think you can shrink God to this box, this building, this land? No. God wants to show you that he's so much more glorious than that. You're missing that. And you're missing God's eminence. He's transcendent. He's beyond. But he's also with us. But he's with us in a way that you don't get. You think he's with us because of this land and this temple and these particular practices. No, God is with his people. He dwells with his people even when they're not in the promised land. He goes with them into exile. It's always been that way. God sticks with his sinful, fallen people, and he always will. 
And the culmination of that is Christ. Jesus is the final resting place of the glory of God. Paul says we see in Christ the the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the ultimate temple. He is the ultimate one that all those promises were looking for. And you're missing it, Sanhedrin. Chad read this last week, John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He became part of this fallen, broken world. He went into exile for His people to go after His people. And verse 14 says, And we have seen His glory. He's the glorious one. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the glory of the new covenant is even better than the old covenant. God is not tied to a specific space or a specific people group. We don't have to go into exile to find the promised land and find the temple to find God. No, access to God can be anywhere that His people are. We have access to God. What they only had in the Holy of Holies, anywhere because of what Christ has done. And this is what Jesus even taught the woman at the well. Do you remember that? He says this in John 4, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. There's not going to be sacred space anymore. But the hour is coming and now is here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God draws near to those who trust Him by faith and are seeking to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, God is not only not located to a certain building, God's on the move. God came to this world in Christ, exiled from heaven, and as he does his ministry here, he's going to go around the world seeking worshipers, worship him in spirit and truth. That's what the Great Commission is all about, right? We know the command well. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, but we so often miss what brackets that command. What does Jesus say? What's the fuel for this great commission, this great risk-taking lifestyle that you want us to accomplish, Lord? He says before that, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the God of glory. I'm the glorious one. And I will be with you. That's it. God is on the moves. God's God's people are not the ones that settle into sacred space. They don't circle the wagons and build gated communities and wait for Jesus to return. They don't rely on God just in a certain place in a certain time. No, they rely on God by faith. And they know that no matter where they go, they're in exile. They're not home yet. And they can trust that even in exile, God is still with them. I'm so grateful to be at a church that gets this. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in so many ways. It's so great to see people taking steps of faith, risky things, crazy things in the world's eyes because they know that God will be with them. That they don't have to worship God at sovereign grace to be holy and to have a good life. They can worship God and see others worship Him around the world. And we with joy and sadness, in a way, send people out 
to be trained to go to a people group that they don't even know because they know that God is with them. And we see people taking in foster kids and adopting kids, not because it's fun or a nice thing to do, but because they know that they, they will take the difficulty and the struggle of being involved in this difficult life because it's what glorifies God. Because God was the one to reach out to us in exile, so I should reach out to others that are hurting and preach truth to them. And you guys serve in Sunday school and open your homes to to people that come in every week. You sacrifice so much because you know that God is with you and in you. But I want to warn you, it's not very far to be thankful and grateful for all that God is doing to go to right where the Sanhedrin go. It's so easy to take the blessings of God and all that God has done and to twist them and make them idols. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin did. To assume that God can only work in certain schools or by certain types of parenting or by certain homeschool programs or by certain churches. The sovereign grace is like the the Savior of the world and this is the only place where God will work. We know that's not true, but it's so easy to get there even though God is at work here. And look, I'm not, not telling you to be a Scrooge. Don't sit at home and say, man, you just want us to like anything that God's doing. No. Be thankful for God that's do- what God is doing. Be thankful for your family and your friends and your church, but hold them loosely. Hold them loosely. Because God may send you into exile. God may take anything from you, but He will never leave you. This is one of the things I feel like I've learned the most after doing foster care. We have had two kids for almost seven months now. And we go month to month not knowing whether they'll go home or not. And we are attached, and it would be so hard to see them go, break our hearts. But that may be God's will. And it's starting to, to teach us that, you know what? Even though these are foster kids, we could lose our kids at any time too. I could lose my wife at any time too. I could lose my church, my job, my family. Anything that I cherish in this life that I hold too close, God can take away from me for my good and for His glory. And I need to be okay with that because He might send us into exile. He might send us out into this world to do more of what He's doing here at Sovereign Grace. Oh, if you love what's going on here at this church, then some of us need to leave. Sounds so weird to say that, but it's true. If we love the gospel being preached here, that gospel isn't just for Bakersfield. It's for everywhere. We need more churches that preach the gospel and more men and women to believe and more families to worship God. And God may call us out to do that, but he'll be with us. He will be with us by faith in Christ, and Christ has come to show us that he will always be with us. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to know that you are with us. That in this fallen and broken world, 
But we don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know what lies ahead in any way, but you will always be with us. Not because we're in the right place, we're doing the right things, but through faith in Christ and the work of your Spirit, you will be with us forever. Help us to rejoice in that truth as we think about you coming into this world, as we remember what Christ has done, the great Emmanuel who has come to his exiled Israel. Let us rejoice and look forward to when you come again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.